This week on Life and Faith. On any count, Paul is one of the most significant human beings who ever lived, and he should be studied not just in Bible studies and theology, but in history, psychology, politics, literature. A.N. Wilson argues that he was the first of the great romantic poets. We feel this impulsion to tell our story, to bear witness of the mystery that is us. The Romans took for granted their right to massacre men and to enslave women and children. It's infringing on the concept of human identity. Welcome to Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Well, Greg Sheridan is the longtime foreign editor at the Australian newspaper, and we're used to his in-depth writing about Australia's relationship with the US and especially Asia. But in 2018, he outed himself as a Christian and made a defense of Christian belief with his book, God is Good for You. We had Greg in when the book hit the shelves, and he had a good response to that book. And this year, he has followed it up with another Christians, the urgent case for Jesus in our world. It's an even more pointed attempt to highlight what is at the core of Christian belief and why it might be worth another look. A recent interview about the book at ABC Radio Sydney's Drive program with Richard Glover showed that, at least with Richard Glover, Sheridan had achieved a large part of his aim. You know, even for a non-believer like me, this is a very engrossing book, Greg. I felt that Jesus came alive in the pages in a way that he hasn't for me before. That doesn't mean you've suddenly made me believe in the bodily resurrection or anything like that. But I really felt that I understood him as a real character from history in a way that I haven't before. I'm sure that would warm the heart of any writer of this kind of book. When I spoke with Greg from his home in Melbourne recently, I asked why these books and why now? So I felt there was a lack of Christian books in the secular culture. That was a motivation in a sense for the last book. But I had one very interesting reaction to the last book. Somebody said to me, something to the effect of, look, not a bad effort at uh, establishing the rational case for belief in God, but where in your book is the living Jesus of the Gospels? And I thought that was a fair question, a fair critique. And of course, if you are an addicted book writer, this is now my eighth book, you don't need much provocation, you know, before you, you get into another book. But it was probably two years or so uh, I spent working and thinking about the book while I was doing my day job. And that was two years that I spent much more intimately in the Gospels than usual. So like a lot of Christians, I, I hear uh, gospel passages at church services and I, I meditate on particular passages and so on. But it's a long time, if ever, since I'd properly read the New Testament, a book at a time, reading it as if I was a journalist, which I am, you know, for meaning and narrative and character and so on. And of course, it's so gripping. It's so immediate. It's so visceral. Uh, when you read it that way, and I think I'm not remotely critical of the Christian practice of meditating on particular passages, but I do think there's also a tremendous power to it when you read it sort of one book at a time and then one letter at a time from Paul, I greatly enjoyed Paul's writings, obviously, and the longest letter is only eight or nine or eleven pages or something. So it's not not as if you die of uh, old age in the reading. <laughs> Getting through it, oh, you make a big point of this. You say that the New Testament's an engaging story; it's 
full of human glory and fallibility. And you also want to make the point that it's fun. Uh, you found it to be fun? I don't think many people would imagine that's what they're getting if they pick up a Bible. Well, uh, with the last book, I spent a lot of time in the Old Testament, and that is undeniably fun. You know, the <laughs> book of Jonah and so on, and of course, beautiful story like Ruth. But there's more fun in the New Testament, I think, than it normally gets credit for. So, you know, one chapter in the book is, is about the crucifixion. That's not fun, obviously. That's yeah. a, a visceral, moving, immediate, terrible experience. But I love in, so I became quite devoted to the book of Galatians, Paul's letter to the Galatians. And early on, he has this nice stuff about how he's going to see Peter and James and John, and he's going to do what he's told. He's a good boy. He's submitting to authority. And then almost a minute later, he says, but by golly, I really disagree with Cephas, uh, is, you know, the Aramaic name for Peter, about, uh, you know, the fact that he used to eat with the Gentiles and now he doesn't. And I told him to his face, you listen to me, Cephas, this, you're talking rubbish, you know. And then he goes on a bit and he gets nice and lyrical and lovely again. And then he's very annoyed with the people who he thinks are misleading the Galatians. So he says, I wish they would all go and castrate themselves, the whole lot who are uh, misleading you. And, of course, in a lot of Paul's letters, he's also dealing with such wonderfully mundane things as fundraising. You know, we've got to collect a lot of money to send back to the church in Jerusalem, you know, and uh, this is going to affect our credibility and so on. Now, all the fun of all that is, first of all, I can't imagine if anyone was making this document up as a fake that they ever would have included all that stuff. It has the absolute ring of truth and authenticity to it. Yeah. Second of all, you get Paul's human personality. And then you have that lovely passage in one of Peter's letters where he says, yes, I know Paul is a bit difficult, you know, a bit hard to understand. I, I understand. But you've got to put up with him. What he writes is the scriptures, you know, yeah. a bit like Bob Hawke telling the troops, you know, I know Paul Keating can be a bit <laughs> full on, but, you know, he's one of us. Yeah. And you don't hear enough about that mm. because Christians naturally... And I'm no, there's no criticism of anybody, but Christians naturally are focusing on the sublime and transcendent message and the theological import of particular passages. The enemies of Christianity are just finding sentences that they can pull out of context and they've got a few, you know, set piece things that they don't like about it. Not many people are really reading it. And I think when you read these New Testament books as a reader, you get all this wonderful human interaction that sort of doesn't make the official broadcast somehow or other. Yes, and one of the reasons that you find it so compelling is those details and it's that very human element to it. And so you're trying to make a case here that the Bible's more accessible than people think and more kind of engaging. It does require work, though, doesn't it, to get the full riches of it? Uh, yeah, you're right, Simon, it does. It certainly does. We all need help and guidance and... Uh, Brilliant people have puzzled for thousands of years over some of the things Paul has said and so on, some of the things Jesus has said. Yeah. But I do want to strike a case for the layman, and the laywoman's ability to read the Bible sort of unassisted at first effort, you know. So even if you find in a text that 10% of it is a bit difficult, 90% of it is abundantly clear. So I advise people when if they're not accustomed to reading the New Testament, to start with the Gospel of Luke, all the Gospels are wonderful, but I find Luke very warm because it has the most women in it. Mm. And it's also, in a sense, written in a way that's very accessible to a modern reader. And Luke says, you know, at the start, 
he virtually says, I'm a journalist and I've interviewed everybody and I've read all the previous material. He's the Bob Woodward of the early Christian movement, you know, and I think he's got a great scoop from Mary and so on. Mm. I think the first letter of John, you get John's fantastic tone of voice, this this wonder and grandeur of John's conception of Christ. And then Paul's writings, uh, as I say, I fell in love with the book of Galatians. People have their own favourites and everything in Paul is good, but Galatians is a good place to start. He tells his own story uh, in the context of Galatians and he gives you a sense of his vision of Jesus. And he also, of course, has in Galatians that wonderfully magnificent statement of universalism, there is neither Greek nor Jew, slave nor free, male nor female. Yeah. And I think you can read all those books and you can go wrong on some interpretations, but it's better to read the book. Put it this way, uh, Simon, would you rather see a performance of a great Shakespeare play, say Romeo and Juliet, or would you rather read a book of literary criticism about Shakespeare? Right. So go to the play first, read the criticism second. You also represent Christian faith as a really full life, a sort of a a richness to that of celebration and community and goodness. Is that how you've experienced it? So I've never had myself any difficulty believing in Christianity. I've had a lot of trouble living up to its its elementary components. Uh, so I grew up in a kind of a place where, where the family's culture was kind of Christian. So feast days, you know, Christmas, Easter, there always seemed to be a feast. You know, they say, I heard a great line about Christians once, when they feast, they feast, and when they fast, they cheat. You know, so there's a lot of food and drink, sport, yeah fun, good cheer, there's always forgiveness, and you're always welcome. So I think sometimes the enemies of Christianity presented as a doer, legalistic, formalistic, dull thing, whereas on the inside, you know, it's just full of life. Let's touch on some of these important things, particularly in the early part of the book, where you're trying to draw people back into the story of Jesus. Now, you call it the most radical thing in the universe, the death of Jesus, this claim that God's dying in this agonized way and in a a sense it's become almost kind of hackneyed and you're trying to uh, reinvigorate what an astonishing claim it is yes Simon so um so I don't want to be theologically heterodox here you know I try to operate from that sort of C.S. Lewis mere Christianity Mm. consensus that all that all Christians who can sign up to the Apostles Creed would believe in But it does strike me just journalistically almost that the most radical claim of Christianity is not in fact the resurrection, it is the crucifixion. Because if you believe in God at all, you would believe that God conquers death. And some other traditions, some other religious sensibilities have the idea of God or a God walking on the earth, you know, Krishna walked on the earth. It's different from Christian view. It's in a time before time, it's prehistory and everything. And I think the wide intuition of God interacting with humanity shows that humanity was expecting God. You know, it's in our DNA. It was expecting an an experience like Jesus, even unconsciously. It was there. It was built into the human design. But I know of no other religious sensibility in human history which has the idea that the all-powerful God, the everlasting, eternal, omnipotent, omniscient God would become a human being and not triumph, although, of course, Jesus triumphs in the resurrection, but 
would undergo defeat, humiliation, mockery, torture, be completely in the hands of his enemies and then suffer physical death, suffer actual death. And the idea of God suffering physical death, it's so radical. You make a big uh, effort here to convince people of the truth of this story. So you work through a lot of historical sources and draw on centuries of scholarship to do that. I wonder whether or not you're kind of trying to explain a faith to people that is now very foreign to most people in a country like Australia. That, that's part of what's going on here, isn't it? Oh, absolutely, Simon. So Christianity has kind of been whited out of our culture. Now, I think the culture has become hostile to Christianity. You don't want to overstate that. Christians in the West, Christians in Australia, we're not persecuted like Christians in China or Christians in Pakistan or Christians in Africa or anything like that. But the culture has become very hostile to Christianity and no longer are the Christian stories in people's background. So Martin Luther King could make his great I Have a Dream speech full of biblical phrases. I've been to the mountaintop. I've seen the promised land. And this would resonate with everybody knew what he was talking about. The Beatles could write, let it be, you know, the words of Mary to the Archangel Gabriel, and they knew exactly what they were doing. Today, the atheist element of our culture or the culture more broadly tries to bluff Christians out of their beliefs. And they do this in two key ways. One, by saying that belief in God is irrational. Science has decided against God. Well, my last book was trying to tackle that head on. Mm. And then secondly, they've been saying for a couple of hundred years, the New Testament is all baloney. It's complete fiction. It was made up a couple of hundred years later. It was Savonarola like wicked church officials importing all their dreadful doctrines. There's no historical basis for it. And so I'm no path-breaking uh, biblical scholar, but I'm a competent journalist. I can read the scholarly books and read the sources and so on. And it turns out that every archaeological and historical source we have tends to confirm the broad historicity of the New Testament. So you certainly cannot prove Jesus' miracles, just as you can't prove or disprove God. You cannot prove from history that Jesus rose from the dead, in my view. But there is nothing in history which contradicts the broad story of the New Testament. I mean, it's clear from sources that Jesus was a real person, that he was crucified. Most scholars who are completely anti-Christian accept this. You know, the Dead Sea Scrolls confirm the accuracy of the Jewish life it was uh, describing. There are non-Christian historical sources that bear it out. The next generation of Christians, the Apostolic Fathers, uh, Polycarp and Clement of Rome and so on, they knew the apostles. So were the apostles making it all up? And then were the, the friends of the apostles making it all up? This is a very widespread conspiracy. Paul's writings, all the scholars date the earliest of Paul's letters from about 48 AD, certainly well within 20 years mm. of Jesus' death. We know that Paul was in his first letters, telling Christians who already believed in the resurrection. So the resurrection story became a Christian doctrine very, very early on. Emperor Nero was blaming Christians for the fires in Rome in 64 AD. So that means Christians had exported their movement to Rome and become substantial. Now, this is all very, very shorthand, but I just think modern people should know that the historical evidence is not against the New Testament at all.
This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with Greg Sheridan, foreign editor of the Australian newspaper and author of Christians, The Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. In this book, Greg describes the Apostle Paul as the Vladimir Lenin of Christianity. I wanted him to explain what he meant by that. Well, you know, I got a few people to read chapters in advance, and some people didn't like that comparison at all. (laughs) So Lenin, in personality and morality, was the opposite of Paul. Lenin was a brutal communist tyrant Mm. uh, who who really hated humanity and just saw it entirely instrumentally. But uh, N.T. Wright, in his wonderful biography of Paul, argues that Paul, on any count, is one of the most significant human beings who ever lived. And he should be studied not just in Bible studies and theology, but in history, psychology, politics, literature. A.N. Wilson argues that he was the first of the great romantic poets. Mm. And I, I agree with both of those assessments. And I wanted to look for a character who had a similar historical consequence and had similar talents. Now, the one way that Paul and Lenin resemble each other is that Lenin had a deep theoretical understanding, but also a brilliant program for bringing communism to power. So the reason communism became a world power is really Lenin. And to some extent, one of the key reasons that Christianity became a world force was Paul. Paul understood the theory of the Jesus movement, the theology of Christ at a very profound level. He also had a brilliant program for creating Christian communities. You know, he was an absolutely unique figure in his time, completely master of the Jewish world with its monotheism, completely master of the Greek world with its rationalism and tradition of ancient philosophy, and completely master of the Roman world. He was a Roman citizen. And what he got from Rome more than anything was cosmopolitanism, globalism. Paul was the first great cosmopolitan Christian intellectual. And then the whole of the ancient world was based on hierarchy and inequality. Men were superior to women. uh, Masters were superior to slaves. Firstborn sons were superior to second and thirdborn. And Paul's universalism completely revolutionized. He tore the mind out of the ancient world. This great statement we've talked about, neither Jew nor Greek, etc. I mean, there are many factors in Christianity's spread. But Paul's universalism combined with his tremendous energy and drive in founding and sustaining and guiding the early Christian communities meant that Christianity went from a tiny Jesus movement into, you know, just a a, a wildfire spreading all over the ancient world. It's not all down to him, but he was certainly crucial. There's lots of different elements to this book, and one is the way you talk about Christianity in popular culture. And you write about the fact that novelists, there's lots of them that you mentioned, but people like Marilyn Robinson and Graham Greene and others are able to write about big Christian themes in a way that's broadly accessible and and appealing. Is this a way for Christian faith to be understood by a culture that is, to a large extent, estranged from certainly the institution of the church and perhaps the story of Christianity itself? Because there's an appeal, there's a sort of an imaginative appeal in these pieces of art. Yes, I think that is the case, Simon. I think belief, you know, to use the dry Thomist philosophical terms, belief is an act of the will, not an act of the intellect. Belief can't outrage the intellect. But the will is motivated in part by the senses and the emotions. And it's in art that you find 
the senses and the emotions engaged. It's also in direct personal engagement with other people. I am a stranger to false optimism, but I think the cultural situation may be a bit better now than it was five or seven or eight years ago. There was a period where, so in the 1950s, Christianity dominated popular culture in the West. You look at all the Academy Award-winning movies, How Green Was My Valley with Walter Pidgeon as the great Protestant minister, Going My Way and Boys Town with Bing Crosby and Spencer Tracy playing terrific lantern-jawed tough guy priests with hearts of gold. <laughs> um, the best-selling books were Christian books, uh, all kinds of great American authors. Billy Graham, of course, was an enormous phenomenon of the 20th century. Mm. And then the culture became neutral and then it became overtly hostile. And when I wrote a book uh, about six years ago, a memoir, I went to a whole squad of writers' festivals. There was not a single pro-Christian book in the whole lot. But just lately, I've noticed that Christianity hasn't actually been banished entirely from the popular culture. It keeps coming back. So these novels of Marilyn Robinson, so I love the great Christian novels of the 20th century, Graham Greene, Willa Cather, I'm very devoted to the novels of Willa Cather, Evelyn Waugh, obviously, lots and lots of others. Wonderful novelist, uh, Piers Paul Reed, who, who wrote in the 1970s. Uh, and then that went completely out of vogue. Christianity is a serious impulse to creativity. And you think, well, that's gone. The Christian novel is gone. And then Marilyn Robinson comes back with these fantastic novels. Gilead won the Pulitzer Prize, and it's a, a reflection near to death of a Congregationalist minister in his late 70s. You could hardly <laughs> describe something which would be less likely to be yes. gripping, but I defy anybody not to be moved by Gilead. And I've recommended this novel to lots of atheist friends, and they've come back to me and said how profoundly moved they were by this. You recognise that while in the West, Christianity might be kind of struggling and in a strange place, but it's rapidly growing in other places and you make a big emphasis on china what's your sense of christianity in china because that's a story that's not often told yeah, so there are two chapters on chinese christians one based on former foreign minister of singapore who's the smartest man i've ever met who is a very devoted christian and speaks about the interplay of culture how chinese culture can approach christianity which in its modern guise has had a western face predominantly the canon of Christian saints and so on seems seems Western. So that's a that's an initial hurdle for Chinese Christians to jump. Then the other chapter is based partly on interviews with Chinese Christians today, arranged over sort of secure phone lines. I hope I didn't get them into trouble, but they they were very confident that the phone lines were secure. The expansion of Christianity in China is one of the most astounding stories of Christian growth in the last hundred years. So in 1949, when the communists took over. There were two or three or maybe four million Christians in China. Today, there is somewhere between 60 million and 120 million. And I outline in the book why it's so very difficult to have a good estimate of the number of Chinese Christians. About 10 million of those Catholic. The rest are uh, sort of evangelical Protestant house church movements, which has been immensely successful in China. Now, this growth has taken place under the most difficult conditions. During the Cultural Revolution, Christians were savagely persecuted. Priests and nuns were put in cages and put in cathedrals to be mocked as public exhibits. There was a bit of easing after the Cultural Revolution and a bit of easing in the first years of the new century. 
and Christians absolutely flourished. And then under Xi Jinping, there's been another crackdown. Now, I argue in the book, one of the reasons Christianity has flourished in China is because it's true, but it, it offers meaning and purpose to life. And human beings need meaning and purpose. The Communist Party of China truly hates Christianity, not because it appeals to the marginalised, though it certainly does that, but because it appeals to the well-educated and the thoughtful. And I really argue the case in the book that the Communist Party of China is, in a sense, another world religion. And that's why it hates Christianity so much. It sees Christianity as an alternative religious tradition to its own. The Communist Party of China attempts to provide a total view of life it attempts to provide existential purpose to Chinese citizens, you know, furthering the party, furthering the state, completing the proletarian revolution. It's very scriptural, has very authorised scriptures, and it takes a very scriptural view. It has eternal doctrines and then current applications of those doctrines. It even has a dusty metaphysics. And very much like the old Roman Empire, the emperor becomes a deity. Yes. And so the Chinese state is trying to impose the Chinese president as the head of all religious traditions. So they're not only persecuting Christians, they're not only persecuting Uyghurs, they're not only persecuting Tibetan Buddhists, they're persecuting mainline Buddhists who have been a normal part of Chinese life for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years and insisting that they get rid of the images of Buddha and put the images of Xi Jinping. Now, the, the way forward for Chinese Christians is very difficult, very difficult, but they are fully aware of all of their circumstances and they are inspiring in their heroic fidelity to Christianity. They're like the early Christians, really. They're not going out seeking martyrdom, or some of them do, but very, very few. That's not their... All they want is to be allowed to live decently as Christians, but they're not giving up their Christianity. And with all the difficulties, they're continuing to spread their message. So I can't predict how it's going to go in the future, but I can say it's been an astounding uh, story up till now. And, you know, the Christians in China are amongst the most faithful and I would say magnificent Christians in the world. Well, finally, Greg, uh, what would a modern Western secular person find the most surprising about Christianity were they to take a serious look at it? Well, I'd say two things, Simon. First of all, the immediacy and compelling story of the personality of Jesus. They would be astonished given that Christianity is written off in their culture as dull and staid and uninteresting. That's why I'm sort of very keen to get people back to the New Testament directly. Yeah. The other thing they'd find astonishing is how good so many Christians are. A lot of Christians have been very bad. There's no doubt about that. Christians have done lots of bad things across 2000 years, but they've also done an astonishing number of good things. And um, in the second half of the book, I interview and profile a lot of notable Christians or interesting Christians who are who are inspired by their Christianity to do good things. And I'll just offer one tiny example. There's this wonderful woman, Gemma Sasia, who just decided as a young woman that she wanted to go to Africa and help poor people. And Gemma is the most full-blooded, fantastic country Aussie woman. She did a good university degree. She just missed out on getting into medicine. She did a science degree. She loves life. You know, she spent her undergraduate life attending bachelor and spinster parties. You know, <laughs> she's full of energy. She's married in Africa. She's got a tribe of kids. She's a very down to earth person to talk to. 
But her whole life is just inspired by the idea that isn't it great to help people? And she's got a particular relationship with St. Jude. I mean, a lot of Christians might find this a little bit unorthodox. St. Jude is the patron saint of lost causes. So she's always asking St. Jude to pray to God on her behalf, and he never lets her down, you know. And I just exchanged emails with her. I read a little autobiography she wrote years ago, a very funny, good-humoured memoir. You know, and her story of building the schools is so funny. The early volunteers would come along, and she'd put them up in Bunnings tents. You know, she bought the tents from Bunnings, and they'd, they'd live in her front yard. And she and her husband built their house room by room. They had one room, and the volunteers would join them for dinner and then sleep in the garden and so on. Some guy came from Australia, was going to help me out with a bit of money. Turned out he had a truck driver's license. Their bus driver was crook that day. So he, he ended up driving the school bus for them for that day. And so on. there's just a wonderful Australian country practicality about it. But at the end of it, she's done all of this because of her love of Christ. And at the end of talking to her, I felt better about being a human being. I felt proud of the human race. You know, we're capable of some pretty crook things, but we're capable of some pretty good things too. And if it can inspire Gemma in this way, maybe it's worth a second look. Well, it's a good news story. We could all do with some of those. Greg, it's always good to talk to you. The new book is Christians, the Urgent Case for Jesus in Our World. It's another excellent contribution. Everyone should go and get a copy and read it. Thanks for being with us, Greg. Thanks so much, Simon. A real joy to talk to you. This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. It's great to have you with us. Please leave us a rating or review. It helps spread the word about the podcast and gets it out to more people. Next week. It's the only thing in the world. You know, you go to work and you do your job, but then... What you talk about amongst your colleagues is often the exams. What you do in your breaks is study for the exams. What you do after hours is, you know, either spend time at the hospital seeing patients for the exams or study for the written exam. So it's really kind of an all-consuming time for a couple of years.